Good morning, everyone. Let's turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. The book of Colossians, chapter 2. My text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 10. Title of the sermon is Christ or Chaos. Beginning at verse 1 of Colossians chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can gather today as your people, those whom you have called out of darkness, you have transferred us into the kingdom of your dear Son. And we have before us this morning this great text of Scripture which elevates and glorifies Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that we, as your servants, as your slaves, would elevate and glorify Christ in all of our lives, every aspect of our lives, that we would daily turn from sin and turn to Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, Lord, I just pray for your blessing upon our time this morning. We pray that your word would go forth with power. We pray that it would be clear and your spirit would accompany it and that it would accomplish the purpose for which you have set it forth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul here is writing an epistle to the Colossian church, a church that he has not actually personally uh, met. He says in verse 1 of our text that, For all who have not seen me face to face. So the church in Colossae was in the area of Phrygia, which is uh, west of Galatia. Uh, close to the area of Ephesus, 
Uh, Paul had visited Ephesus in his second missionary and third missionary journeys. In his third missionary journey, he had spent about two years there. And it appears that while he was there, um, a convert of his, Epaphras, had gone out and uh, spread the gospel to some of the surrounding areas, including Colossae, and it appears that a church was established there. But he has heard of them. He has heard of their faith in Christ, and he loves them, and he has great concern for them. And he desires in this letter to encourage them to guard against the philosophies and so-called wisdom of the world, the Greek world at that time, which surrounded them. Uh, not much unlike the world which surrounds us today. He says in verse 4, he says that he says this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In verse 8, he says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Philosophy, um, if you break down the etymology of that word, just phileo is love and sophia is wisdom. And so he is saying, don't be caught up with a love of worldly wisdom that is according to human tradition, but instead to be caught up in a wisdom, in a philosophy that is according to Christ. The text that I'm going to be spending most of my time with this morning is in verse 3. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Recently, I, at work, had a Roman Catholic friend comment to me. We were talking about a particular political situation, and he said, well, Jesus doesn't really have anything to say about this. He just wants us to be loving and help the poor. And I reminded him, I said, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Many in the church today would try to separate the lordship of Christ to the spiritual realm and remove him from the arena of, you know, those things that we know about, you know, science, politics, economics, business. That's the area that we have knowledge. But, but Christ, he is, he is lord over the church. He is lord over spiritual and religious things. They would say that Jesus has jurisdiction over the church, but not the state. But what does Paul say? He says here in verse 9 and 10, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Not just some rule and authority, but all of it. The world is quite happy with a church and with Christians who hold to this idea, you know, you just give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, as if Jesus, when he said that, was limiting the jurisdiction and power of God. 
and not instead defining our personal responsibility to pay our taxes. How often that text is taken out of its context. Professing Christians will often say the Bible is authoritative in matters of religion and spiritual things, but not in science and in history. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has quite a different opinion about this. He says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. He says in Philippians, and writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that is Christ, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This morning we want to delve into a topic, in fact, kind of two topics, and that is what we call epistemology and ethics. Now you may not have heard or be that familiar with those terms, but I want to take a brief moment to define them. The first thing is epistemology. Epistemology comes from the Greek word episteme, which simply means knowledge. It is the study or the theory of the nature and the grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity. That's what Webster says. The term ethics, Webster says, is a set of moral principles, a theory or system of moral values. It also comes from a Greek word, ethos, um, which Paul uses, for example, in 1 Corinthians where he says, um, good company is, uh, or morals are corrupted. He uses the word ethos there. So, knowledge, is a, the definition of knowledge is that it is a justified true belief. To actually know something, to, to truly know something, means that you have both a justification for it, a reason for why you believe it, and that it's actually true. It actually comports with reality. So, the world has its epistemology, its theory of knowledge, and Christians have an epistemology. The question is, is which one actually makes sense? Which one can actually provide a foundation for actually knowing anything at all? God has created all of us as his creatures, as human beings. We are made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And he has given us both our senses by which we apprehend the world and we see the world, we recognize it, we can function within it, and he has also given us reason, cognitive ability to think. God has given us these two things, but he has not given them to us as our ultimate authority. The world, since it denies God and does not give Christ the glory for these things, that's all they have. 
All they have is their reason and their senses. And so a, a person who relies on his senses to determine what truth is, we call an empiricist. He has a correspondence theory of truth. He says, well, what is true is that which corresponds with reality, and we determine what is real by using our senses or the scientific method. You could see, for example, Thomas was an empiricist. He said, I won't believe unless I see, right? He did not trust in the revelation that Christ had given him, but instead he relied on his own senses as his ultimate authority. So empiricists will say things like, well, all truth must be empirically proven by science. You heard people say that? Hear that all the time. The problem is, is the empiricist is on the horns of a dilemma. Is that statement itself true? And how does he prove that statement? If he proves it with something other than empiricism, then the statement is false, right? But if he proves his statement with empirical methods, then he's engaging in circular reasoning. That's all he has. He has nothing else. So he's using his senses to validate his own senses. Well, the rationalists might come along and say, yeah, you empiricists, you guys, you guys are messed up. You guys have a self-refuting worldview. I instead have a coherence theory of truth. For something to be true, it has to be coherent, it has to be logical, it has to be rational. And so all truth must be proved by reason and logic. He's on the horns of the same dilemma. How does he prove that statement? If he uses reason and logic, he's engaging in circular reasoning. If he proves it with some method other than reason and logic, the sentence itself is invalidated. Ultimately, that's all the world has. And because so many people in the world recognize the futility of relying on your senses and reason to give you what truth is, they fall into a category of irrationalism. And they say, well, everything's just irrational. We can't know anything at all. The problem is, is they think they know that. The irrationalist, to even demonstrate his irrationalism, would have to use rationalism, right? The problem is, is that fallen man, with his philosophies to make sense of this world, fail. He can't make sense of anything. He's living in God's world, trying to make sense of God's world with the tools that God has given him, but he doesn't want to give glory and reference to God. He attempts to use his own reasoning and senses without giving glory to God. The problem is, is that man as a creature does not have a nature to ground truth. God, by his very nature, can ground truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. He is unchanging. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is the creator. He is eternal. 
These are the incommunicable attributes of God, and we don't possess these. So therefore, we, even though man tries to be, man tries to elevate himself up in the position of God and tries to say, yes, I can, I can come to truth without God. I can understand and know things to be true without God. But he can't. He is dependent on God and his revelation. Now, it's not that Christians don't use their senses and don't use their reasoning. Don't mistake me for that. But we don't use them as our ultimate authority. We know that these are things that have been created by God for a purpose, so that we can live in God's world. I want you to take a moment to think a little bit. Have you ever experienced where you thought you knew something, and then later on some more information came along and whoop, I was wrong, right? So it follows that unless you know everything, you could come across information and knowledge that would invalidate what you think you already know. Conclusion, you can't know anything at all. Unless, unless, the one who does know everything has revealed it to you in such a way that you can know it to be certain. So what do we as Christians have as an epistemology, as a theory of knowledge? We have a revelational epistemology. We can know things to be certain because God has revealed them to us in such a way that we can know them for certain. We can trust them. Now, the thing is, when I say a Christian has a revelational epistemology, actually unbelievers do as well. Before we came to Christ, we were dependent on the revelation of God. We were able to balance our checkbooks. We were able to go to work. We didn't think that both the bus and I could be there at the same time in the same place. We functioned as if there were absolutes, as if there are things that we can know. But we can't provide any reason for why we know them in unbelief. The unbeliever then also has a revelational epistemology. He just denies it. I want to turn to Romans chapter 1. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Reading verses 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became 
fools. Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God, the ESV says, is plain to them. The actual Greek word there is just the preposition en, or in in English. And they, I, I like how the New American Standard translates it. It says, for, because what is known about God is evident within them. The knowledge of God is intrinsic to us. We know this God. When we come to Christ, we don't go, wow, I just learned something that I never knew before. No. The veil has been taken away. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness before God in his grace and mercy came to us and, and, and took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh so that we could understand and believe the truth that ultimately we always knew. That there is a creator. And Paul says here that they know God. In the Greek there, it uses the definite article. So if you would translate it directly in English, you would say they know the God. That means they know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They know the true and living God. Now, they don't know all the specifics about him. That's in special revelation. It's in Scripture. But they do know this God. They don't have a general concept of a deity, but they do know the true and the living God. We knew the true and the living God before we came to Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that means what we call the laws of science and of nature, like we talk about gravity, we have mathematical descriptions of gravity, we have mathematical descriptions of electromagnetic forces, the nuclear forces. We, we can define these using laws and we can say, well, they, they always function this way. Well, why do they? Because Jesus upholds them by the word of his power. And the reason they don't change is because Jesus Christ is faithful, as we sang this morning. The unbeliever, those who do not bow the knee to Christ, are trusting that Jesus Christ will remain faithful each and every day. When they get up in the morning, they don't walk around as if maybe gravity is going to stop working. It's because they're trusting in Christ. They know that he upholds all things. They might say with their mouth, this universe is just random and changing. How do you account for laws? How do you account for that the sun's going to come up tomorrow? The only reason anyone can give is because Jesus Christ holds it together. Paul, when he visited Athens, on uh, he went to Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He visited the Areopagus there. And he tells the Athenians and the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, he says, in verse 23, he says, I, As I was passing through, I, I saw an altar 
to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, what you worship as unknown. He's not agreeing that they don't know it. In fact, he goes on to demonstrate that they do know it. In verse 28, he quotes their own philosophers. He quotes Epimenides. He goes, let me show you that in your own philosophers and poets, you demonstrate that you actually know this God. Epimenides of Crete said, for in him we live and move and have our being. Um, Artis's poem says, indeed, for indeed we are his offspring. So Paul demonstrates to the Greeks who might not have even read the scriptures, that they already know God. Their own poets demonstrate that they know God. All men know God. Richard Dawkins, the famous um, atheistic uh, biologist, says that there is no purpose in this world, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But then he travels around giving speeches, writing books, debating as if he has a purpose and as if there is a reason. How foolish, how foolish. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greek seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Who is the one who is wise? Who is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Notice that the Jews demand a sign. They are empiricists. The Greeks seek wisdom. They need rationalization and reasoning. They're rationalists. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That is because Christ crucified, a crucified, as what it was thought of in the Roman time, a crucified criminal was a stumbling block to the Jew and the Greek with their own reasoning. If they relied on their own knowledge and not God's revelation, it seems foolish, doesn't it? Doesn't the cross without the revelation of God, would it not seem foolish if that's what we relied on? But when we actually look at it, it is the world's philosophies that are foolish. They are the ones that have self-refuting theories of knowledge that lead to nothing, chaos. The reason that we are, our society is falling into the chaos of paganism again is because we are falling further and further away all the time from the revelation of God. The question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning, and I believe that all Christians should ask themselves, is if in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then why do we constantly find ourselves trying to marry the world's knowledge with what's in Scripture? We try to bring these things together. Try to take a little bit from the world. What about the world's psychology? Do we mix that with the Bible? That which is theunostas, that is God-breathed, that comes directly from the one who is omniscient, and something that comes from somebody who can't even know if they know anything? Why would we mix those together, but yet we find ourselves always tempted to do that? One worldly philosophy that's very prevalent today is the philosophy of naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that a belief system that everything that we see today and observe in the world has slowly come about through natural processes. The problem is, if you ask a naturalist, how does he prove that naturalism is true? He goes, well, look at the geological layers here and how they they're build up over time and is he not showing us a natural process that slowly goes over time? Isn't that what his beginning assumption was? So in order to prove naturalism, you have to assume naturalism. The naturalist has really no reason to believe in naturalism. He just starts with that assumption and then 
concludes that naturalism is true and there is no God. But he started off with there is no God and naturalism is true. So why, if that is all he has, why do we try to marry naturalistic philosophies with scripture? Adam, I want you to think about this for a little bit. Adam could have been a naturalist. Maybe on day six after creation, he's walking with God. Or day seven, maybe. Walking through with God on the, through the garden, and they see this beautiful big oak tree. And Adam goes, well, how old is that tree? And Adam says, well, or God says, created on the third day, the seventh day, it's four days old. Adam says, oh, no, no, that can't be right. It takes a tree that size 60 to 70 years to get that big. Well, why don't we cut it down and count the rings? The thing is, if Adam or anyone relies on those naturalistic assumptions for why something the way it is, you can come to false knowledge, which is not knowledge at all. The tree was actually four days old. Let's think about this. Let's think about one a little closer to our time. When Jesus turned the water, the wedding in Cana, into wine, what if somebody would come along and tested it and said, well, it looks like it's probably been aged for two to three years, comes from Chardonnay grapes, uh, probably grown up around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that's my scientific analysis of it. Well, it'd be false knowledge. It's not true. Jesus created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. He just created it right there. So how would we know what that, what's true about that wine? Only if God reveals it to us. So then why do we take naturalistic beliefs about the past and say that they're false or that they're true and that the Word of God, God's special revelation, which provides a foundation for why we can know things, why do we reinterpret the scripture with that? We need to ask ourselves that question. We must rely on God's revelation as our source of truth. When God reveals something to us, we should not reinterpret it in the light of humanistic, naturalistic assumptions and philosophies. So many in the church today try to reinterpret Scripture with the supposed knowledge of human philosophies. God's Word is paramount and authoritative in all areas of human life. Economics, business, Government, law, science, education, ethics, sociology, all of it comes underneath the authority of Christ. All of it. Let me bring one that might strike home a little bit more to you. What about, what's the ultimate authority in the United States? Is it the Constitution of the United States? Or is it Christ and his word? The ultimate authority is always Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christians must decide 
what philosophies will govern their daily lives when it comes to things like, let's just say child rearing, the family structure, business ethic, works ethics, sexuality. What determines what is true in all these areas? It must be the word of God because the world only provides chaotic alternatives. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is writing to Timothy here towards the end of his life, and he uh, he writes this Second Timothy chapter, or I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter three. I think I said chapter two, chapter three, verses fourteen through seventeen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is telling Timothy here that that scripture is God-breathed. It's theunustos. It's the breath of God. It comes from the pens of men, but men moved as they were moved or wrote as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at that text in a little bit as well. But Paul says here that scripture, something that is breathed out is something that is close and personal comes directly from God. And what is this scripture capable of doing? It is capable of making the man of God complete. It's not partial. It's not that, well, I mean, the word of God helps me with my church life. And then, you know, I've got, I've got, uh, sociology and uh, psychiatry that teach me on some things about how I should raise my children. Or the Word of God teaches me religious things, but um, the area of government is where I have to learn things from, from the philosophies of men. No, that's not what Paul says says that the man of God may be complete. It is sufficient. It is the only thing that we have in our possession that is breathed out by God. You take the Roman Catholic Church, for example, teaches uh, three forms of authority. The Bible, sacred tradition, and the church. They say that these are all equal. Well, the ecclesiastical structure of the church is made up of men, and the traditions are things that are handed down, and they are not God-breathed. What is the only one of those three that are directly given by God? 
Scripture and Scripture alone. You can tell what their ultimate authority actually really is, and it's sola ecclesia, sola church, not sola scriptura. So the Word of God is able to equip us for every good work. Everything that the Christian man needs to be engaged in in his life, the Word of God is able to equip us for that. Now, some people might say, well, I mean, the Word of God doesn't tell us how to build an iPhone. The Word of God doesn't tell us how to build a Saturn V rocket to go to the moon. Actually, you couldn't have done any of those things if the Word of God wasn't true. Men are capable of doing things in this world. They can build rockets, they can make iPhones, they can design air conditioners and seat belts, but they can only do that because of the wisdom that God has given them. And it's as if those things were not part of the eternal decree of God anyway. I think God didn't know an iPhone. He knew all of it well before we ever did. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're reading verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the dawn, the day dawns and the morning rise star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the first two verses there, or verse, uh, first three verses there that we read, Peter is recounting something that he experienced. Peter had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had seen Jesus in his glory, glorified. And he had heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was no doubt an amazing experience. And we might be tempted to say to ourselves, well, if I had that experience, that would establish my faith. If I could see something like that. But as Peter say, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. Some tra one translation says more sure. We have a revelation from God 
that is more sure than the experience that Peter had on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have truth from God, Genesis to Revelation, that is sufficient to complete us for every good work. The Reformation principle of sola scriptura. Many in the church believe that the Word of God is infallible, which is one of the principles of sola scriptura, and that it's breathed out by God. Most in the church believe that. The problem is, a sola scriptura also means that the Word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient for us. It is enough. Our brother Russ was recently preaching in 1 Corinthians on the gift of tongues and the charismatic revelation. And so many people today and we might find ourselves in this where we, man, if, if God would just talk to me, if God would just say something to me, well, he has. And this is sufficient. This is enough. We must never desire more than this. What God has said is this is enough. And this is able to teach you everything that you need for salvation. This is able to complete you for every good work. We have this prophetic word that is more fully confirmed. Isn't it amazing, uh, Brother Rick and I were talking about this morning, about how when you read your Bible, you're reading a text that was written by 40 authors over 12 to 1500 years and how your Bible is full of cross-references. Did you ever think about your, how your Bible is full of cross-references? Why is that the case? It's because it's got one author, one ultimate author. There's 40 human authors, but there is one ultimate author and that is why it is one book. You can't get hardly two people to agree on how to sugar a cup of tea, much less write a book separated by different cultures, different continents, and have a revelation like we are so blessed to have in our hands. Let us hold fast to this word, this word of prophecy, this word of scripture that is able to complete us. Let us not marry it with the self-contradictory, self-refuting, worldly philosophies that provide no foundation for knowledge, for morality. That's why the world is in chaos today. They can't even tell the difference between genders anymore. And that is because they have denied the only solid foundation that we have for truth. And that is Christ and his word. Let's bow our heads for a closing word of prayer.
Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you, O Lord, that you have not left us in darkness, that you have not left us in, in the confusing morass of human philosophies, but that you have brought your word to us and you have opened our hearts that we might understand it and that we might have a clear picture of the world and your creation. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to be conformed by this word into the image of Christ. We pray that we would, with boldness, declare your word to the world around us who has nothing to offer. They have no philosophies or thoughts that can stand up to the word of God. Have you not made foolish the wisdom of this world, O Lord? We pray, O Lord, that we would rely on this and we would trust in your word, that we would depend on this above all other things, all other so-called knowledge, and that we would rest in Christ and in him alone, in whom is hidden and are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Let us... Uh,